The scripture passage for Pastor Charlie's sermon this morning is Hebrews 8, 8 through 13. Hebrews 8, 8. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made their, with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for these vows that you have given to your people. And I pray for freedom and boldness and power now, Father, to proclaim them in a way that lands upon our hearts. And I pray that you would break chains this morning. I pray that you would set us free. I pray that you would show us the power of the words, I will do it, declares the Lord. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Last Friday night, I had the privilege, along with several of you, of going to Tommy and Lauren Chafin's wedding. It was a beautiful wedding. It was really focused on God. And like many such weddings that are God-glorifying, somewhere in the middle of the ceremony, they took traditional vows. And I was really glad that they preserved those traditional words. They promised one another to love each other for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do them part. At one level, those words could seem just to be ceremonial words and formal words that have a kind of sacredness to them because they're only used in that context. I don't know of any, else, any other place in our culture where those particular words are spoken except in the middle of a marriage ceremony. So they could seem like they're nothing more than formal and ceremonial words. But at another level, these words are sacred because they have spiritual significance and they have legal force to them. They have legal force. Things are not the same today as they were for Tommy and Lauren just three days ago because they took a binding vow with one another, right? Today is not the same as it was three days ago. Everything that belongs to Tommy now belongs to Lauren. Everything that belongs to Lauren now belongs to Tommy. And should one of them desire to cancel that vow, God forbid they would have to go through a court of law in order to do it. That's how you know that those words were not just merely words, but they have legal power. They have to be mitigated in courts of law now. So the words are beautiful, ceremonial, and they are legally binding. In other words, those words that they spoke in a moment during their wedding ceremony were not merely words. Now God himself has also made a set of vows to his people that are beautiful and ceremonial, and they are also legally binding. 
The words that God spoke will be upheld in God's court of law forever and ever and ever. He is the judge. He is the one who made the vows, and his words will be upheld forever. They have legal force to them, is the point that I'm trying to make today. And because this is so, the words of God have a great effect in the lives of everyone who will hear and believe and receive what the Lord has to say. So with this in mind, what I want to do today is just work our way through chapter 8, verses 8 through 13, and then we'll talk a little bit about the the implications of the beauty of the covenant that God has made with us as his people. In chapter 8, I want to read actually verses 7 and 8. The author writes this. He says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second covenant, that is. For he finds fault with them when he says. So I want to stop right there. If the author had gone from the end of verse 7 straight into the quote that he makes from Jeremiah 31, it could seem that the Lord himself was saying that the law that he gave through the angels and through Moses was itself flawed. It could seem that the Lord himself was saying that the fatal law with the law is the law. The very words that God spoke from his own mouth. And this would seem to be keeping with chapter 7. If you look at chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, the author writes this. For on the one hand, a former commandment, that is to say the first covenant, is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And here the words weak and useless, what they really mean is that, that they're unable to produce the desired effect. The law was unable to produce perfection. It was unable to produce holiness in people who came to God under that covenant. And so since it was unable to produce that effect, the author says it's weak and it's useless. And to this point, it could seem that the problem is the law itself. And I hope you feel the tension of that because these words were spoken out of the mouth of Almighty God. And so to say that the words of God were flawed, this presents a kind of problem. But there are at least two verses that help us see that this isn't what the author is saying. Look first at chapter 7, verse 28. I won't read that there for you, but as you read it and meditate on it, you will see that this verse shows us that the problem with the law was that the high priests who were appointed under it were themselves weak. The high priests were imperfect. And so the the law was weak and useless because the high priests were weak and useless. And what I mean by that is they were unable to produce the desired effect of the first covenant. They were able to produce perfection even in their own lives. They were fraught with weakness. They were fraught with sinfulness. I've told you we had basically 83 tries at a high priest before Christ. And not one of them was perfect in their own lives. And as I've been saying for the last few weeks, when the mediator is flawed, we cannot get to God. We must have a perfect mediator in order to reconcile the relationship with God. So again, I say the law was weak and useless because the high priests were weak and useless. The flaw is not the law. The flaw is the weakness of the flesh. Then look at chapter 8, verse 8. There, the author further clarifies that God found fault with who? He found fault with them, right? Not with it. If it said God found fault with it, that would mean that God found fault with the law. 
But what it says is that God found fault with them, which means that he found fault with the people. They too were weak. They too were broken. They too were less than perfect. They were less than holy. They were less than able to fulfill the commands of of God. So the law was weak and useless because the people were weak and useless. Indeed, the, the fatal flaw is not the law. The fatal flaw is the weakness of the flesh, beloved. The fatal flaw is not the law. The fatal flaw is the weakness of the flesh. Human beings are simply incapable of perfect obedience. We don't even live up to our own standards, right? Go ahead, set 10 rules for yourself today. Set 10 resolutions of things that you promise that you will do or won't do for 12 months of time and see how that goes for you. You will not be able to live up to your own standards, much less God's standards. And therein lies the fatal flaw. In light of this fatal flaw, God had a choice to make. On the one hand, he could have rightly and roundly condemned humankind and consigned us to hell forever. He would have been perfectly just to do that. Or he could have consigned us to any other fate that he chose because he is God We as human beings were 100% responsible for the rift that occurred between us and him. He was 0% responsible. He is completely holy and true and just. And so any judgment he made would have been right and righteous and true. But God, praise be to his name, has revealed himself to be the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, very slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Beloved, this is our God. And so in the 6th century BC, God pronounced a new covenant with his people through the prophet Jeremiah that in due time he would bring to pass. This is why the author of Hebrews quotes the full text of Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, which, by the way, happens to be the longest quote of the Old Testament that's in the New Testament. And so what I want to do today is just look carefully at what God has had to say and contemplate the vows he has made in the, first, in the second covenant now. First of all, notice with me in verse 9 that the new covenant will not be like the old covenant that God made with his people through Moses on Mount Sinai. In that covenant, God promised to do many things for his people, and he expected many things from his people. He demanded many things from them. He commanded them to do certain things and not to do other things, and he meant what he said. Three specific times, the people responded to God with these words. Exodus 19, 8, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Exodus 24, 3. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Exodus 24, 7. All the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. So, in the first covenant, it was a two-way covenant that required both God and the people to play a particular part, and each part had to do their part. God was the instigator of the covenant. God was the absolute sovereign. God was not an equal party with his people, and yet he got into essentially a two-way covenant with his people. He had things to do. They had things to do. They looked him right in the eyes and three times said, we will do it. This, beloved, was the legal force, the legal language of that first covenant, and it would be very, taken very seriously, those words would be. 
You'll see again there in verse 9 that the fatal flaw is not the law, but it is with the people because what happened to them? It says in verse 9, the people did not continue in this covenant. What that means is that they didn't stand firm in it. They didn't stand fast in it. They didn't grasp onto it. They didn't, they didn't uh, show loyalty to God. They were not faithful to God. They were not obedient to God over time. They failed at every turn to love the Lord their God with all of their heart and soul and mind and strength. And no matter how much they promised that they would do better next time, they never did better next time. They failed and failed and failed and failed. And God was patient and patient and patient and patient. But finally, he handed them over to themselves. And the Bible says he showed no concern for them. I'll tell you, I never want those words to be spoken by God toward me. Those are horrible words when God Almighty turns his back on you. Now those words don't mean that God was unfeeling or that God was hateful. God is always love, right? Our God is not a hateful, vindictive God. But what it means when it says that God showed no concern for them is that he handed them over to their own ways. He warned them and wooed them in every way that he could. Beloved, come back to me. Come back to me. Come back to me. He gave them sacrifices for their sins. He sent them prophets to proclaim his promise of forgiveness. Come back to me. Come back to me. Come back to me. But they would have none of that. They wanted to be the harlot. They wanted to live the life of an adulteress. And so God said, fine, off you go. If that's how you want to live, then that's how you can live. And by the way, God had told them that he was going to do this in the middle of the first covenant. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, he said, listen, people, you have said three times, we will do it. And if you do not do it, here will be the consequences. He spelled it all out for them. So God isn't throwing something upon them that he didn't warn them about. God is simply fulfilling his word. They were unfaithful. They reaped what they sowed. This is sometimes called the passive wrath of God. This is when God says, okay, you want to jump off the cliff and die? Go ahead, jump off the cliff and die. I've tried to warn you. I've tried to woo you. I've told you everything I can tell you. I've done everything I can do. I have no more words. I have no more actions. If you want to jump, jump. And that's what God did. That's why it's called, that's why it says that he showed no concern for them. And beloved, this is the inevitable outcome of every single form of we-will-do-it religion. This is the inevitable outcome of our efforts when we try to work our way up to God. It is a, 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 an effort that is not worth making because it has failed from before it starts. We-will-do-it always ends up in ain't-gonna-happen. Always. Because the fatal flaw lies inside of our hearts. It lies inside of us, and we don't have the capacity to do it. But, as I have already mentioned, this is not the end of the story because in the deepest places of God's heart, He is indeed merciful and gracious. He is truly slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God will simply never give up. That is the best news that you could ever hear in your life. God will never, ever give up. And so even in the midst of a terrible tragedy in the days of Jeremiah, when the people of God were turning their back on him in horrible, horrible ways, right in the midst of this 
great betrayal, God made a new covenant with his people, which came in four statements. It's a covenant that supplants the first covenant and through Christ becomes legally binding not only on all believers but on all humanity. This is the legally binding language of the universe and it will endure forever. It is the exact opposite of the we will do it covenant. It is now an I, the Lord God Almighty, will do it covenant. And beloved, believe me, there is a world of difference between these two things. We will do it, and I will do it. So let's now contemplate each of the four statements. God makes essentially three vows and one statement in the middle. There are four things here. So let's look at them. First of all, the Lord says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. So the first part of the vow that God makes with his people, the first thing he promises to do is to put his law inside of our hearts and minds, not on tablets of stone. It's to infiltrate our innermost being with the knowledge of the things of God and passion for the things of God. He will do it. He will stick it inside of our innermost selves. The first covenant was an outside-in covenant. The laws were inscribed on tablets of stone and then on parchments and they tried to affect the human heart by speaking to the heart from the outside revealing the heart from the outside but the flaw was deep on the inside and so that covenant never ever worked the second covenant is an inside out covenant the second covenant is one wherein God solves the problem of the fatal flaw of the human heart by getting to the depths of the human heart and healing it from the inside out. It's the difference between if you have cancer, chemotherapy is an outside-in kind of a type of solution. We'll take this, put it in your body, and hope for the best. But somehow God gets down to the root of the cancer, to the depth of where it is, and he begins to heal it from the inside out, from one degree of glory to another. And notice that the fatal flaw, again, cannot be the law. Because even in the second covenant, what does God do with his law? God puts his laws inside of your heart and inside of your mind. The law, as Paul said in Romans 7.12, is holy. And the commandments is holy and righteous and good. All of the words of God, past, present, and future, are these things. They are holy and righteous and good and perfect. So what's new in the second covenant is that God promises to place those perfect words deep inside of us so that we will think as he thinks and feel as he feels and act as he acts over a period of time. I'm not saying that he makes you instantly perfect. That's not the way he's chosen to do it. He could do it that way, but he's chosen to do it progressively from the inside out. Again, as he causes you to know his ways, to cherish his ways with your heart, and then to want to do what he wills you to do. Beloved, this is the power of the new covenant. I will do it, declares the Lord. I will do it, declares the Lord. That's where the power is at. Those are the legally binding words upon God and all of humankind now. The second vow that God vows is this. I will be their God and they will be my people. 
I will take them to be my lawful wedded bride, and I will give myself to them as their lawful wedded and eternally faithful husband. And beloved, this kind of depth of fellowship was not really new. It was in the heart of God from the very beginning. He first spoke these words that I will be their God. He first spoke those words to Abraham in Genesis 17, 7. And then he repeated them over and over again through Moses and through his prophets. His dream has always been, I will be their God. They will be my people. We will live in eternal and deep communion with one another. We will know a love that the world knows nothing of. And this is why, even in the first covenant, beloved, even in the covenant of the law, even in the outside-in system, the most important commandment was what? It was to love the Lord your God passionately with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. This has always been what God has been after. But the thing that's new in the second covenant is that God vowed to give us a heart to love him in the way that he called us to love him over a period of time. God has vowed to do this work inside of us. God has vowed to cause our hearts to flame with affection for Him. God has put the burden on His own shoulders. And sure, He does give us a part to play. But even for that part, He promises that He will work in us so that we will will and act according to His good pleasure. In other words, God has promised to work in us so that we'll want to do what he wants us to do, and so that we'll have the power to actually do what he calls us to do. Beloved, this is the power of the new covenant. I will do it for you, declares the Lord. You cannot do it. So I, the Lord God, rather than consigning you to hell, I raise my hand and take a holy oath, and I say, I will do it, declares the Lord. This is the power of the new covenant, beloved. This is the new order of things. Third, the Lord declares in verse 11, one of the effects of this new covenant is that everyone will come to know him. The author writes, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest Now, this doesn't mean that every person will be saved and enjoy the full benefits of the new covenant, but I will tell you, even in hell, the day is coming where every knee will bow to Jesus Christ and acknowledge him as Lord. There will be a sense in which every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth will know the Lord, and they will acknowledge the Lord. But this does mean that when God brings everything to its appointed end and gathers all of his people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation, there'll be a couple of ministries that will evaporate. Sorry, Asa. Asa's in San Francisco today, so I can't harass him. But sorry, Asa, evangelism ministry will evaporate. There'll be no more need for evangelism. There'll be no more need for perseverance ministries trying to help people hang on. You know why? Because the Lord will personally take responsibility for seeing that everybody knows him and that everybody keeps knowing him. God will take responsibility for drawing people to himself and then keeping them in himself forever and ever and ever and ever. He will neither need nor call upon our efforts to help him. This is the eternal and sustaining power of the new covenant. I will do it, declares the Lord. And in that day, the vision of Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 14, will come to pass. For the earth 
will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. You won't go to any state where they have homosexual marriage. You won't go to any part of the country where there is slavery and murder. You won't go anywhere in the world where there's lying and deceit and lust and anger and all of these things. It will be gone. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth even as the waters cover the sea. And again, beloved, the punch of this statement is to say that God will cause this fair of a, a state of affairs to come about. You know, the Lord has sent us to Elk River and he's given us a task to go make disciples for the glory of Christ. But I want you to know that the burden for actually doing that is upon the shoulders of God. He will do it. He will do it. And he will use every church that he has planted in every corner of this world to bring about his perfect purposes. This is the power of the new covenant. I will do it, declares the Lord. These are legally binding words. Finally, the fourth thing that the Lord says, this is actually the third vow, but the fourth line in verse 12. He says, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Praise be to God. In the new covenant, not only will God accomplish the positive aim of placing the content of the law and desire for that law inside of our hearts, but he will also do the negative thing of removing the sin from our lives and everything that goes with it. Beloved, if sin was not removed, it would do us no good to have the law of God put inside of us. Because if, if our sin nature remained, we would still continue to mess up the thing that God had done. And so in order to make his covenant come into the fullness of what he meant it to be, he has covenanted to take away our sins from us. He has covenanted to heal our cancerous state from deep on the inside out. Praise be to God. He is in fact a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Praise be to God that he himself was willing to take the burden of our sins on his shoulders. Praise be to God that when the time was full, he sent Jesus Christ to take on flesh and to live a perfectly righteous and obedient life before God, to die a horrible death on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins, and then to be raised again from the dead, so that whoever believes in Jesus Christ will never perish but have eternal life. Reason being, our sins in Christ have been removed forever and ever and ever. That's just mind-blowing to me. If that doesn't blow your mind, you're probably not in touch with the depth and seriousness of your sin. God has removed your sin and chosen to remember them no more. Under the first covenant, the priests and the people had a part to play in making sacrifices for sins. And if they did not do what God had told them to do, guess what? They would not be forgiven. They had to play their part. Under the second covenant, God has taken full responsibility in Christ for the removal of our sins. Not just the forgiveness of our sins, but the removal of our sins. And once those sins are removed, there is no need for a second sacrifice or any other rites or rituals. As Jesus most powerfully said when he was hanging on the cross and just about to breathe his last, he said, it is finished. 
I imagine him hanging there on the cross with the aroma of that oil all over his body. The father brings a wind, it wafts into his nose and he smells it and knows that God is about to accomplish all things. And so with a a kind of smile on his face, even in the midst of pain, he just says, it is finished. I have done it. It has been accomplished. I have taken the sins of the world upon my shoulders and I have removed them once for all in a single moment of time. God has promised that he will do this, beloved. This is the power of the second covenant. I will remove your sins. I will do it, declares the Lord. This is a good time of year for fires. Yesterday it was a little hot and muggy. might not have been in the mood for a fire. This is a good time of year for fires. So I want to encourage you to do something and to do it with other people if you can. You can do this alone, but it'll be more powerful if you do it with friends, family, or maybe even a community group. So the first part is uncomfortable. You got to get a piece of paper and a pen, all of you, pray together, and then begin writing out your sins. One after another, as many as you can think of until that paper is completely full. For some of us, I probably would only have to go back about a week to think of a paper's full of sins. For others of you, you'd have to think more. But how, however far you have to go back, write it all out on that paper, as many as you can, until that paper is just totally full of your confessed sins. Tell God of your propensity to idolatry, to the worship of false things. Confess your pride, your arrogance, your disrespect toward authority, your hate, your resentment, your lust, your lying, your coveting, whatever the Lord brings to mind. Write it out line by line by line. Once you've written it all out, go outside and start a fire, a big hot fire, and read the terms of this covenant together. Read Hebrews 8, 8 through 12 together. Do it out loud. And once you've read the covenant, once I will do it lands upon you, crumple up those papers and throw them in the fire. Watch them burn to nothing because that's what God has done for you, beloved. It's just like if you took your mortgage papers and just threw them in the fire because you found out someone relieved the debt for you and you were free and clear, no more debt to pay. Throw it in the fire. It's gone. This is what God has done for you. If you don't like fires, write out your sins and put them in the shredder. God has removed your sin. He has canceled the record of your sin. I'm not making that up. Let me read for you Colossians 2, 13 through 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with Christ having forgiven us all our trespasses. And how did he do that? He did it by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. With its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Nailing it to the cross. Beloved, this is the extraordinary power of the new covenant. I will do it, declares the Lord. And I tell you, If God declares your debt relieved, your debt will be relieved indeed. Nobody can reverse the word of God, period and end of story. This is the extraordinary power of the new covenant. I will do it, declares the Lord. Beloved, these words, these four lines, they really do constitute vows like wedding vows that God has made to his people in the new covenant. And they have legal binding power. 
They will be upheld in every case of every person that comes before the Lord in his great court forever and ever because God will be faithful to do everything that he has promised to do. This is the hope and the power of the new covenant. I will do it, declares the Lord. And by the way, if you haven't had enough of the I will do it stuff, look at Ezekiel chapter 36. Don't turn there now. This is for later. Ezekiel 36, 22 through 38, if you want to write that down. Ezekiel 36, 22 through 38. Go read that. You'll get a whole whole other dose of I will do it, I will do it, I will do it, I will do it, I will do it. This is the power of the second covenant. This is the guarantee. This is the destiny of the second covenant. So if that's God's part, then has he given us a part? What is our part? Please look at verse 13 with me, Hebrews 8, 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. For the Jews, I think that this meant that the Levitical system that they were so tempted to go back to, it was nothing more than a vapor and it was just about to disappear. In fact, one of the amazing things about history here is that not long after the letter of Hebrews was written and distributed among people, the temple of Jerusalem and all the sacrificial system was destroyed by the Roman government and it has never been rebuilt. This was a physical sign in history that the first covenant had passed away and the second covenant had been inaugurated forever in Christ. So the punch for these first believers was to say, why are you going back to what is already gone? Why are you going back to we will do it when God has said I will do it? And by the way, people, first century Jews, I, the author of Hebrews, am not making this up. I just quoted these words to you from your own prophets, from Jeremiah, almost 600 years before the author of Hebrews wrote. So why would you go back to that? That's really the punch of this for the Jews. Now for us who are not Jews, the punch of verse 13 I think is this. Why would we go back to any type of we will do it life or any type of we will do it religion? Why would we do that? And I'll tell you, every other alternative outside of biblical Christianity is a we will do it religion. Pay attention when you're looking at other religions. Every other one of them is we will do it. We will do it. We will do it. We will do it. Only biblical Christianity says God in Christ will do it. It's the fatal, it's the major, major difference. And so why would we go back to any other thing? As I said, we will do it always ends up, it ain't gonna happen. Because the flaw is inside of here and it's very serious. So in light of what God has promised and indeed accomplished in Christ, we only have one part to play. And that is to believe by faith. That's it. He has done it all. We accept it by faith. And Ephesians 2 teaches us even faith is a gift from God. So he indeed has done it all, beloved. And, in, and so in the first covenant, it was ratified by these words, three times spoken. We will do it, we will do it, we will do it. In the second covenant, all we have to say is, Lord Jesus I believe. Lord Jesus, I believe. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you have done your part. You will be saved. If you will simply look to God and believe what he has done in Christ, then indeed you will be with your Father forever and ever. And any fruit that comes out of that basic decision to believe in God any fruit that comes out of that is also a work of God inside of you. Listen to Ephesians 2.10. 
For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. But listen to what he has to say about these good works. Good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So even the fruit of believing in Jesus Christ has been prepared by God. He will do it. He will do it. He will do it. This is the power of the second covenant, beloved. And it's very powerful indeed. So I only have one very simple and straightforward application for you today. I want to urge you with all of the passion I can muster to take some time today or this week and meditate carefully on the vows that God has made with you. If you believe in Jesus, you need to take this personally because God has made these vows to you. So take the time to meditate on them carefully, line by line, and I promise you, God will show you a thousand applications to your life. Let me give you just a few examples so you can see what I mean, what it will be like as the power of I will do it lands upon you. First of all, to you graduates, and those of you who will be graduating soon after them, as the power of the I will do it covenant lands upon you, I pray that you will dream a dream for your life based on what God has already done for you, not on what you plan to do for God. Live by the power of I will do it, not by the power of God, I will do something for you. I do hope and pray, with all my heart I pray, that you have a passion to make something of your life for the glory of God and the good of other people. I pray that you want to invest your life. I really do. But I want you to know that the only way to live a life that truly counts is to live by the power of I will do it rather than by the weakness of we will do it. So the word to you, graduates, is to go to Jesus. Meditate on what he has said to you and surrender your life to him. Lord, I don't care what station you have in life for me. None of that matters to me. I just want you and I want to do your will in the world. So here's my life, Lord. You do it through me. Believe me, graduates, that's the key to a powerful, meaningful life right there. Surrender to him who has done it all for you. Parents, As the power of the I will do it covenant lands upon you, I pray that it will greatly affect the way that you think about raising your children. I pray that it will cause you to teach your children about the joy of the freedom we have in Christ. I pray that you will not seek to enslave your children in the we will do it kind of covenant and try to teach them to walk in obedience by the power of their own flesh because they have no hope to be able to do that. People who have been freed by the power of the new covenant preach the gospel of freedom. And parents who have been freed by that gospel parent by the freedom we have in Christ. So teach your kids. The only way to do it is to rest yourself in the words, I will do it, declares the Lord. When your children sin, tell them, son, daughter, your sin problem is worse than you think it is. Your heart is sicker than you think it is. But praise be to God, he's accomplished salvation for you. So surrender to God. Come into the fullness of what he has for you. And he will change you day by day by day. Parents, by the power of I will do it is what I'm saying. Only God has the capacity to give you what you need to raise your children in the way that they should go. And only God has the power to lead your kids in the way that they should go. No parenting class, no method, no technique, no nothing will ever work. Only God can do it. 
And of course, there is wisdom that we can learn from each other. Of course, we should pursue that wisdom. But at the end of the day, we have to put our hope as parents in the words, I will do it, declares the Lord. So parents, look to your father, trust in him, and relax. The burden is upon his shoulders, not upon yours. Career-minded people, as the power of I will do it lands upon you, I think it will shape the way you think about your future and all the things that this world holds out to you. When you see what God has done for you in Christ, the lure of money and success and all the possessions of the world will just lose its grip on your heart. It's not that achieving something in your field of service is wrong in itself. It's not wrong. It's not that growing in wealth and possessions is wrong in itself. That's not wrong either. There are many heroes of our faith in the Bible that had many possessions. But when the freedom of the power of what God has done for you lands upon you, these things lose their grip on your heart so that you don't live for them. You begin to see accumulation and adulation as nothing more than tools to glorify God and help other people in this world. Those who build their lives on the power of I will do it will see everything that God brings to them as nothing more than an opportunity to glorify God who has done everything for them. Bill Bright, near the end of his life, who by the way was the founder of the Campus Crusade for Christ, he was awarded something called the Charles Templeton Prize for Christian Leadership. This prize comes with a check for $1 million dollars. So not only was he honored publicly, but he's literally handed a million dollars. And I heard him tell this story personally in a group of about 10 or 15 of us. And he told us that he kept exactly zero of those one million dollars for himself. Exactly zero. You know why? Because in the 1950s, 50 years before he was honored with this prize... He and his wife bowed their knees to the Lord and said, we will only live on this amount of money. That's all we need. And Jesus, anything you bring into our lives outside of that amount, we will give away for the good, for the glory of your name and the good of your kingdom in this world. And so when he received a check for a million bucks, he didn't even have to think about it. And you know what? He didn't even put it in his own personal bank account. He deposited it right into the, into the bank account of a ministry that he wanted to donate that money to. That's what happens when the power of the freedom of this new covenant lands upon you, beloved. It frees your heart from the love of money, of success, of fame, of fortune. And you see whatever blessings God brings into your lives as nothing more than tools to use for his glory and the good of other people. So I hope that you can see that as you prayerfully meditate on the power of the vows God has made to us, as you notice the repeated language of I will do it, I will do it, I will do it, I hope you can see that it will affect your lives in a thousand ways. It will change the way you think and feel and act in every single situation because the power of this covenant is in this promise. You, most of you know it well, Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will finish this work all the way to the day of Christ Jesus. This is the power, the legally binding power of the new covenant. I will do it, says the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I rest myself in you both for my own personal salvation, for the salvation of my friends here at this church, 
for the names of those that we don't know that you have already designed to come into this church, either people who are already believers or people who are not yet believers. Father, I surrender my heart into your hands knowing that you will accomplish all of the purposes that you have declared. You will do it, Father, and I believe in that. I trust in you. I pray now, Father, that you would take this word, that you would take this message and apply it to our hearts, apply it to our minds, apply it to our lives, and free us from a thousand chains, I pray, Jesus. In your mighty and merciful name we pray and we hope. Amen.